The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Everyone, and uh, for those of you who are new, uh, in the beginning of the year I started a 10-part series that's called Introduction to Buddhism. And uh, I do that here when Monday nights when I'm here, and today I'm here. And uh, so this will be the third talk in the series. <clears throat> and um, I could say, just as a more background introduction for those of you who might be new to this, is that um, <clears throat> to call it introduction to Buddhism is um, actually a strange thing to say because there are many forms of Buddhism. <clears throat> and uh, no one really should be in the position of representing all of Buddhism. But this is a little bit... Uh, people who are Dharma teachers have a little bit of religious license <clears throat> to make, you know, to say something like shorthand, introduction to Buddhism. And what we mean is it's introduction to, to the Buddhism of my tradition, our tradition, locally. Um, and so you're getting a particular take on Buddhism for me as opposed to this is the pristine, perfect Buddhism that has been taught down through the ages. Because there is no such thing. There's only that which people have found useful and they try to teach and try to pass on. And, and which, as we pass it on, it's with the, spirit, with the attitude that uh, you'll try it on and find out what works for you. And the whole spirit of trial and error it's a hugely important part of discovering what Buddhism is for oneself. To learn some teachings, to learn some practices, and then try it on and experiment with it and find out what way it applies in your life or how it's useful in your life or how it supports you in your life. And um, however, at the same time, the uh, Buddhism is called a path in, in the in the, our, our ancient Buddhist language, it's Kamaga. Some of you are familiar with, you know, modern Indian languages know it as a Marga. Um, and um, there was a religion, or is a religion, called Ananda Marga. It's a great name because it means uh, path of joy, the joy path. The um, um, So Buddhism is a Magga, a path, and so it's a path that goes to some place. And that place is uh, the guide for how we experiment, the trial and error we do. If, if you want this as the goal of your practice, then a Buddhist practice is used for that purpose. You can have, but actually there can be many goals of Buddhist practice. And uh, to, so sometimes it's good to be clear why you're practicing Buddhism, why you're interested in it. So you can uh, explore, experiment, do the trial and error, and find out how the teachings and practices work for you given the goal, the purpose that you have. So there's plenty of people who come to Buddhism these days because they want stress reduction, and which is a great thing. And, uh, and that's a particular goal. And so then, how is it these teachings work for that? Some people are coming to live a, a happier life, a better life, a life of greater integrity. So how does that work? How, what are the teachings and practices support that? Some people um, are looking to calm their minds in some very deep way. So how do the teachings support that? Bring some kind of peace. And some people are looking for enlightenment, because Buddhism is famous for enlightenment. 
and some people are looking for it and don't have a clue what it is. But those, but they know they know they know they want it. <laughs> you know, it's the ultimate. It's the greatest. It'll make you, you know, certainly the most popular person on your block. You know, so it'll be great. Lots of friends and, you know, <laughs> all kinds of success in life. If you could just get enlightened, you know, so, you, so it doesn't really matter what it is. It just it's a great thing. But it also helps to know what it is. Uh, be, and there are, again, there are different ideas of what enlightenment is in Buddhism. And so you, you, you go around and see, you know, if you have a, some, what speaks to you, what inspires you, or uh, what um, fits you. And sometimes uh, uh, people come to Buddhism and they're not, they're very inspired by the goal and uh, of some that they hear, like the idea of uh, nirvana or enlightenment, awakening, and they hear a particular expression of what that means and that inspires them. That's what I want. Sometimes uh, people encounter the practice and they just love the practice the way it's presented and they don't really care that much. They don't think so much about where it goes, but uh, they're just inspired by the practice. For example, some people find um, the mindfulness dedication is to be honest. And some people have a tremendous kind of inspiration in their lives to be honest and live an honest life. And mindfulness is a practice of honesty, of self-honesty. Every moment that we're mindful is a moment of recognizing actually what's happening and being honest about it to to oneself. And so, you know, where that goes, people may may not be so clear, but that's what they want, is to live a life of integrity with that kind of honesty and have that available. Some people are inspired by the notion of compassion, uh, Buddhism offers a practice to try to, in life, that uh, is supposed to meet compassion and be of service to the world. And, and the awakening doesn't really have that much inspiration for them, but the idea of a life of, of compassionate care with a kind of uh, ethos of what Buddhism is, the kind of values of Buddhism that maybe are less supernatural than some of the religions they grew up with and they don't care for so much anymore. So this, so, so in a sense, you can personalize it, and how far you can go and still call it Buddhism is an open question. Um, but uh, it's okay because there's no one who's going, no one has the authority to tell you what it is. <laughs> Though there's lots of people who will judge you <laughs> if you say, you know, you know, this is what Buddhism is. You teach it this way. There's people who say, no, that's not it. You're, you're too much that, too much this. You're not doing the right thing. There's a right one, and you know you you know you teach too much about rebirth. You don't teach enough about rebirth. You teach about um, you know you, you know uh, your your teaching is way too secular. You know you just secular humanistic values, and really there's great spiritual values we have to include, and without that, you know it can't be. Or, yes, you're teaching meditation, but you're not teaching enough ethics. Yes, you're teaching ethics, but you're not teaching enough meditation. <laughs> and it goes on and on. And, um, and because, one reason because, I guess, it's a religion. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's, religions bicker a lot. <laughs> At least some of the ones that are more public. And Buddhists are no, you know, are not free from that either. And, if you go back to the ancient teachings of the Buddha, uh, it's, uh, he, has, he has some teachings that are, I find quite radical. And I find quite inspiring, some of these teachings. 
And one of them is, don't bicker about all the different views. <laughs> it's not about having views. It's not about having opinions. Um, and uh, in the most ancient teaching, it's not about having opinions. It's not about holding on to ethics, making ethic, ethics ultimate. It's not about having religious practices and making the practices ultimate. It's not about some great cosmic experience of consciousness, some wonderful opening and special state of consciousness. And all the things that people, many times people associate Buddhism with, it's not what it's about really. They're part of it maybe, and they have their place, some of these things, like ethics. But it's a very simple goal. Kind of what I talked about two weeks ago. It's not to cling. Don't cling to anything. And then you might ask, well, why shouldn't I cling? Isn't that useful? And the reason not to cling is that clinging is suffering. Clinging is painful. And uh, sometimes it's, not, it's painful immediately. And sometimes people cling unconsciously, unknowingly to things for decades. And then something happens. It's torn away from them, the thing they cling to, and it's devastating. And then they, start, they see that they're really holding on to this. They're depending on it. Uh, and it didn't serve them in the end. And so one of the ways of seeing the goal of Buddhism, and this is what inspires me a lot, is uh, the end of suffering, the end of clinging that brings suffering. And so then the question is, if that's the goal, what's the means to that? How do you live? What are the teachings? What are the practices that lead to that? And so there's, we experiment, we learn them, and we apply them for ourselves. It's not my job to tell you what you should do or what Buddhism, you know, exactly really is. I just have to get in the ballpark well enough <laughs> that uh, inspire you just well enough that you try to try some of these things out and, and then find what works for you and, you know, and what, you know, how, what, what's best. And um, that way it's not exhausting being a teacher. Because if a teacher is supposed to get it, teach everyone the pristine, perfect practice and pristine, perfect Buddhism, exactly the right view and philosophy, this is what it is, and get everyone to agree on that, that's exhausting. But if you allow me just to be close enough <laughs> that, uh, that it's something that works for you, that's meaningful for you, for you, gives you a new perspective, supports you in some way, and that you can apply and use in your life, then, uh, then you know, I think hopefully we've done the job. Does that sound okay? So Buddhism is a, but it's called a path. So what a path means is that it's a, it's a practices that lead you somewhere, that take you somewhere, it's something you walk. Then the metaphor of a path is something that you bring your whole body into. You walk on a path. So it's something you engage in with all of yourself. It's not meant to be, traditionally, Buddhism is not, supposed to, not meant to be a hobby. It's not meant to be something you do just, you know, on Sunday or something. But it's something that you engage your whole life with, all of you. That's what, that's what the offering is, this idea. And for some people, the idea of the end of suffering and the idea of understanding what that potential is about uh, can evoke a tremendous amount of compassion as we encounter the suffering in the world around us. Then we understand something about suffering, the cause of it, how to address it, how to meet it, how to respond to it in ways that hopefully not only help us not suffer more, 
um, would help us to suffer less and do the same for other people, support other people not to suffer. So it's called a path. And, um, and so there are classically in Buddhism two distinct paths that uh, are taught uh, by the much of the tradition. One is a path for the people who just want to live a happier life, either in this lifetime or in future lifetimes. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's advice of living a good life for the purposes of going to the good place. And then, uh, the, um, the, and then there's the other path, which is the path of awakening. And that path of awakening is, uh, or the path of liberation or freedom from suffering, uh, is a higher, calls for a higher level of commitment. It's, a, it's meant to be for people who really, you know, really want to put all of themselves in here and somehow be tra- transformed in the process. For the people who are, want the path of liberation, there are um, three major uh, trainings in that path. And um, so one of the ways Buddhism is referred to is as a, as a, as a path. It's also called a training. And Buddhism is a training because we're training ourselves in some way. And, um, and there are three major categories of trainings. There is ethics, there is mental development, and there is wisdom. And these are a whole set of things that uh, we engage in. And if you want to be involved in the path of liberation, you do all three. If you want to do the path of worldly happiness, then the primary emphasis is on uh, ethics. What's happened here in the West, and actually not just in the West, but in uh, modern Asia in the last hundred years as well, is that a lot of lay people have also started to learn meditation. And uh, when peop- many people who do meditation are not really so interested in awakening, so the insight or the wisdom, but they're uh, using meditation to live a healthier, happier life. <clears throat> and uh, the great example of this is what's nowadays called secular Buddhism here in the West, where people can go to a local hospital, they can go um, to all kinds of clinics, they can go to spas, they can go to the local library, they can go many places in, co- in corporations, and they have cl- uh, teach classes in mindfulness. Uh, we have someone here at IMC uh, who currently is teaching a, a class in mindfulness. At, we're invited to go teach students at a local college. And um, so it's nice. You know, just, it's, it's kind of like, and uh, the, I asked, why do you want someone from IMC to come and teach the, your college students? And I was told, because there's an epidemic of uh, suicides on national colleges. And we have to bring kind of wellness to the students. And mindfulness, they, coming, a lot of these students, they said, are coming to the college already being introduced to mindfulness meditation. They want more of it or they want to be taught, taught more. So, you know, it's, uh, they're not there for awakening. They're there for a happier, healthier kind of life. So that's kind of exciting to bring these together. But classically, the people who want a happier life are living an ethical life. And what's nice, a little bit nice, is these two paths, the path of awakening 
and the path of healthy, happy life share the same first training, a training in ethics. The, and so for lay people, the, the path for awakening, as it's classically taught in Buddhism, is to be ethical, and, and primarily through adhering to five sets of precepts. Uh, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying, and not uh, uh, making yourself crazy with drugs and alcohol. That don't get intoxicated. And, um, and those five are kind of considered fundamental uh, trainings for lay people. And the interesting word there is they're called trainings. So they're not called commandments. It's, it's all or nothing. That you, and you break them, you're like, you know, you go to hell or something. It's, um, these are trainings that you are training to grow into, to really learn how to live that way. It's a process of trial and error, of reflection, re- thinking deeply about your life, trying to do your best, and you're trying not to do those things. And um, so an example would be, it's not uncommon for someone to come to me and they're trying to live an ethical life. And, uh, and in this kind of environment, there's people are living, you know, in some ways a pretty ethical life. And so they come to me and they're asking about the first precept, not to kill. They're not in danger of killing people, but they're, um, they feel like they need to um, uh, fumigate or put poison on in their homes because of the ants or the cockroaches or the termites or something. And what do I think about that? And, um, and what I think about that is, I'm, I'm so happy that they're asking. I'm so delighted that someone is concerned about the welfare of these little critters, that they're reluctant to kill them, and they feel some kind of moral concern that they come to me and ask me, what do you think of this? So that's one of the things I say. Uh, it doesn't answer their question, but I tell... <laughs> But I generally don't want to answer their question. I don't want to be in the position of arbitrating what they should or shouldn't do, what's right and what's wrong. But I will encourage them to go look for all the alternatives to killing. I say that a lot of times people are quite quick to go for the violent way, the so, so supposedly the easy way, and um, and to be done with it. But to really uh, to be live an ethical life is to minimum would be to really reflect deeply about what we're doing and look for alternatives and how to, how to accomplish what we think, feel we need to do without causing harm. So many years ago when a person came to me and said um, she was thinking of getting a gun to protect herself, and what did I think? <laughs> I didn't say then I was happy that she was thinking that way. <laughs> but I did say... Um, uh, I didn't want to answer her question, yes or no, what did I think, was it right or something. But I did want to encourage her to consider the alternatives. And as I said, there's a lot of alternatives that might actually make you safer. Um, but it takes time and effort to get trained and to get wise. And, you know, it's not like you just, um, and, you know, but, the, you, know, the, without, you know, the idea of gun is quick. You don't have to get trained the same way. So, um, so these five precepts are the, one of the core ethical guidelines for lay people interested in just living a healthier, happier life. And it tends to put together the conditions that over time 
the uh, better, better uh, circumstances come our way. They tend to create a good life that way. The other primary practice for lay people uh, for living a happy life is generosity. There's something about the chemistry, the the alchemy of of generosity and how that we we relate to other people and how we relate to ourselves that really begin to change dramatically our relationships that we live in. To be generous to the people we live with in in our communities, in our families, in our places of work, but to make generosity kind of like a primary vehicle, primary bridge to the world around us, changes that world we have around us. People relate to us differently. We relate to other people differently. Generosity gives us a deeper connection to people. We see them in different ways. Um, We don't see them just on the surface. We don't see them just as instruments for our own welfare. And uh, it really creates a healthy uh, uh, relationship to the world around us that will come back and support us and support the kind of happiness that uh, is reliable and good that is much more helpful than winning the California lottery for the sake of happiness. Do you, do you know that they've done studies on people who win big, big lottery, jackpots and lottery and they study them a year after they win and they're less happy than they were before they won? So you still want to win? Many people will say yes. <laughs> and um, be, be, win the lottery and be unhappy. Where do I pay for that? So, um, generosity is a path. Ethics is a path. The other path, the path of freedom from suffering, is traditionally in Buddhism the path for monastics. Because back in the old days, especially in the time of the Buddha, there were not any IMCs down the road. You know, you can go, you know, drive down to IMCs, to a local community center, and get teachings and meditate. Um, even just uh, uh, you know, a few decades ago, people would travel a long way to get Buddhist teachings. Uh, the um, you know, just not my direct teachers, but my the uh, the grand the grand teachers, grandparents of mine in the Dharma. They would travel through jungles for um, weeks, to, because oh, the, back in northern Thailand, back in the forests of northern Burma, there's this great meditation master, a great meditation teacher that people have heard about. And so there was no app, Audio Dharma app. There was no bookstore to get the books. There was no radio, you know. In order to get that great teacher, you had to walk there. And people would spend weeks sometimes to find a teacher to sit there and learn from and teach. And so... Um, And then there was no support for that. And the people's professions back then, people's work, most people, they didn't have vacation time to go on a meditation retreat. Uh, There were no meditation centers where you can go and just go and do a retreat. Um, And so the idea of of having spiritual spiritual practice for for really deep spiritual uh, engagement available was kind of, un, un, for the most part, unavailable for centuries and centuries, unless you became a monastic. And some people's drive for freedom from liberation was so strong that they had to do that. They had to, they would renounce the world and engage full time, wholeheartedly in the practice. 
And um, some people suffer a tremendous amount. The, 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 the horrific challenges some people have been, th- been through. Sometimes uh, ordinary life doesn't make any sense anymore. But to do something really, really serious and deep, like engaging in, in deep, full-time prof- spiritual life is what's healing or what's liberating or what really is the only thing that makes sense. There are other people whose personalities are contemplative in some deep way. And uh, I've known people who are struggling to, if I may use this analogy, this metaphor, uh, struggling um, to come out of the closet as contemplatives. Nobody wants, no one in their family members want them to be a contemplative, meaning don't want them to, you know, live a quiet, meditative life of contemplation, of study, and the parents want them to go off to college or want them to I've had people tell me literally they, I'm supposed to be a doctor you know my, all my family all my siblings are doctors <laughs> you know they want me to do that or you know I, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to follow in my family's footsteps take over the family business but I just want to go off and study and practice and meditate and uh, so some people it's just their personalities who they are is they're a contemplative and uh, I've seen people finally step into that role and you see that they kind of blossom. It's like, oh, that's who they are. Wow. You know, and you just kind of like, they inhabit that in such a beautiful way. And so the people who want to go, you know, much further than just having a happy life, um, then there's those three trainings. There's a training in ethics and training in mental cultivation and training in wisdom. The background for this kind of training is one of the fundamental uh, uh, orientations or understandings, perspectives that Buddha had on human life. And that is, it begins with the idea that um, of change, that there's a radical, uh, our life is characterized by impermanence. Most Indian religions, the time of the Buddha, like the Buddha, really emphasized how impermanent this, light, this world is. And in Greece, we had, uh, I think it was Heraclitus who said, you can't step in the same river twice because of uh, everything's changing all the time. And a lot of people understand that. And for many people, that's an important insight to have. What the Buddha's contribution to seeing the changing nature of this human life of ours is that the change, the impermanent way things change and morph over time, is not random. Uh, Change occurs uh, based on the conditions that influence, that come to bear on the situation. So um, if it gets cold and there's a lot of humidity, those are the conditions for rain. Those conditions come together. But if it's hot and not so humid, and probably won't going to have rain. Um, if you have... Um, so as, as this climate changes because of climate change, those are conditions that we're having now different kinds of weather all over the world. And so what are the conditions that contributed to that? There's some argument these days about what's the underlying uh, human role in the creating those conditions. But uh, we certainly see that humans have created lots of conditions in recent decades and centuries 
that influence all kinds of things in the world. Human health is uh, is phenomenally affected by the conditions that uh, of how humans live their lives. The um, the smog in cities around the world that people are getting asthma and worse is phenomenal. And it's clear that it's humanly caused smog. The, and it goes on and on, the litany of things. So the conditions that we create shape how things change in the future. And that happens in our hearts as well, for our minds. So if you um, kill, steal, engage in sexual misconduct, lie, and maybe drink alcohol, just if you do it all, that creates a very different set of conditions influencing how your life's going to unfold than if you do the opposite. Chances are, if you break all the five precepts, you're going to end up being miserable. Probably end up in jail or worse. If you do the opposite, that's a very different set of conditions that's going to create a very different direction in which your life's going to go. So uh, the Buddha's teaching about impermanence is that we have a role in influencing how impermanence changes, how things change over time by the conditions we put into the system. And so if what we want is to become free of suffering, we have to create the conditions that will allow that to happen. So if you want to become free of suffering and you just spend, you know, all your time, uh, you know, I don't know what, reading romance novels or watching pornography or spending your time at the casinos or, I don't know, just all kinds of things, that's not going to be the conditions that allows you to look deeply into your heart, deeply into your mind, and begin uh, putting the conditions in place that begin to shape, change your mind in such a way that your mind can be transformed in a useful way. So this is called, the second training is called mental cultivation. We're developing our mind. And so we're developing our mind to be mindful, to be able to uh, be in the present moment. So we're not always being pulled away, being distracted by our thoughts, our preoccupations, our concerns. And that's something we can train our mind to do. Uh, It takes practice. But practice and practice over and over again, and the mind will change. Mind is plastic. You can cultivate your mind to develop, to have greater concentration. And concentration really helps a lot to stay calm, balanced, and to be able to see more and more clearly. Concentration practice is kind of like uh, clearing the windshield from dirt so you can really see well. Uh, So the mindfulness can be strong, but if the windshield is dirty, you can't see so well. And so we cultivate concentration. It's possible to cultivate uh, equanimity, to cultivate a capacity to be non-reactive. And a non-reactive mind puts in place very different conditions than a reactive one. And so different things happen. Different things can unfold because of that non-reactive mind. We cultivate loving kindness and, uh, and compassion. We cultivate 
a healthy feelings of goodwill, of generosity for the people around us. And that creates a very different inner landscape than one that is motivated by greed or I just want to acquire more for myself or I don't care about other people. And so we cultivate these things. Initially, people might think that's too much. I can't do that or it just seems like too high of a mountain to climb to change myself and it's too hard or it, you know, but actually it's not that hard. Um, It's remarkable how much the mind, the heart, can grow, develop, and get stronger through regular practice. And, uh, and, but you have to do it, you know, regularly, ongoingly, again and again. And I'll give you my favorite analogy for how, uh, uh, you know, just doing small changes can be really big over time. And that is, I learned it from a yoga teacher. And that is that a long time ago, um, there's something called a triangle pose, where you kind of lean over to one side and try to get one hand flat on the ground. And, uh, but if you can't lean over and you can't get your hand on the ground, the instructions was to, back then is to get some telephone books. <laughs> and now uh, those of you who don't remember telephone books... <laughs> Uh, the, the, the paper, the individual sheets of paper in a telephone book probably was not possible to have them thinner. <laughs> they were about the thinnest paper you could you know, see in ordinary life. And, um, and, so you get, and so, you know, so you get a stack of these telephone books, however many you need, so you can get your hand to flat against some surface, lean over. Every day, you tear out one page. One page that's so thin is inconsequential, seemingly. But you do it every day, and eventually, all the pages will be gone, and you'll have your hand down on the floor. That's training. So yes, the, some of the teachings about concentration makes it seem so lofty and distant from my mind. The idea of being mindful and being in the present seems so distant and far away, given how distracted my mind is. But in fact, we can be trained if we do it slow. You know, if we, can, we do it slowly, and maybe you don't. If you meditate every day, you, maybe you won't see the distance you've traveled because it's so thin, just like those thin paper, paper, or the telephone book. But over time, you will change. And so to do, so to cultivate. And what's what's uh, what's very important by this uh, teaching, Buddhist teaching, on the conditionality, is it takes. Uh, we're not the cause of our spiritual change. We're not the cause for how we really change. We're just putting the conditions in place and allowing this natural process of growth and develop to happen. It's kind of like. Um, I, I used to tell my kids, one of the ways I, I bothered my kids, I would tell them, please stop growing. <laughs> I like you just the way you are. <clears throat> stop. <laughs> and, you know, they were little kids, right? Stop. And, and usually they'd laugh at me because they knew it was impossible. And they took it as a kind of a express, expression of love. Uh, you can't, you know, if these kids are eating, they're going to keep growing, right? You can't stop. Turns out, 
the, we don't keep, stop developing and growing when we turn 17, 18, 20, 20, whenever it, whenever it is when you know, you're an adult. Uh, the natural movement towards growth to maturation can continue until you're 100 if we create the conditions for that natural growth to happen. Most people get so preoccupied and caught up with lay life and adult life that they actually uh, put, uh, put a, a stop to that natural maturation that's there. And the practice of mindfulness, of concentration, of kindness are in some ways helping us get out of the way, taking the distractions, the greed, hate and delusion, the fears we live under, and getting them out of the way to allow this natural growth to continue happening. It really feels that way. So it's a beautiful thing uh, because it's, it takes it out of me, myself, and mine. It's almost like not you who's growing. It's just, it's nature. or It's the nat- nature of the mind, the heart, to grow in these beautiful ways. And it's one, I think one of the really beautiful adventures of human life uh, is to um, do these kinds of mental cultivation practices that uh, helps us to encounter and experience this natural wonder of the inner growth, the maturation, the movement that can be there. It doesn't have to be dramatic, but in small ways, we get changed and develop over time if we put the conditions in. And one of the conditions is to put in the effort. One of the conditions is to be willing, to be willing to be changed. Without that willingness, we won't change probably. And then the third training is a training in wisdom. And the uh, wisdom is to have insight, deep understanding of our minds, how it works, uh, of our clinging, um, the nature of attachment, and the nature of freedom. The, some of the, the, probably one of the best kind of insights you can have in Buddhism is to really understand the nature of freedom. Wow, that's, you know, to really feel and know firsthand something about the nature of how the mind becomes free. And, uh, and then have that as a reference point for how you live your life. To have that as like a North Star, a guide, oh, that's how you can be free. And then you go through your life and you see all the ways you have a choice or all the ways you get caught and you know there's another way. And because you, have a, you already have a, have a kind of embodied experience of freedom, that uh, you, you really can see the difference now between being caught and not being caught. And then you can kind of navigate with that and maybe lean going the direction of freedom, of how not to be caught. And if you lean in that direction, that's a condition for the growth of freedom. If instead you, you lean in the direction of your clinging, it's too much work to be free. It's easier to cling. That's a condition for reinforcing the habit of clinging. So beginning to have these insights, very practical insights, gives us much greater choice and gives us a clear, clearer sense of what the purpose is we're doing this for. Because now we really know it for ourselves. It becomes more and more of a personal experience, this path. It remains a path, the path we walk and engage in and move and develop in. But more and more as we do it, it becomes uh, our own path. And they say in Buddhism that as you keep doing it, at some point you become the path. Isn't that nice?
And, um, and so one teacher said that um, when you really understand Buddhism, Buddhism becomes you. Somehow the joining of the two. So in terms of this introduction to Buddhism series, I wanted to convey to you uh, the uh, few points today. One is that this is a very personal path that we explore and develop for ourselves and we use ourselves as the canvas. We use ourselves as the material that we're experimenting with. And uh, we have to have some sense of what the goal is that we have. And then we're trying to make it match the you know, experiment or practice in a way that supports our goal. If you mostly want to have a happy life, then by all means, be ethical and be generous. If you want to do a little bit more, be kind. If you want to do a little bit more, meditate. But if you want a path of liberation, if you want to kind of, if you're interested in the full potential of this path, then you need to do more than ethics and generosity. Then it's really a, 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 the work of mental cultivation. And it's a path, meaning that it's a, an unfolding, it's a journey, it's a growth. It's not a sudden all or nothing kind of thing hit the enlightenment button and you'll be happy ever after. You know, why should I do all this hard work when I can just take an LSD or psilocybin? Or maybe there's an app. (laughs) And we can do, you know, much more efficient than meditation. Um, The idea is to walk a path that includes all of who we are, not a quick fix, and, and become transformed in the process. And classically, that's to be transformed to become a totally free person. A person who knows firsthand what it means to be liberated or free. Which is synonymous in the classic Buddhist language with, uh, being, um, with uh, experiencing a profound level of peace. A peace where we feel completely at home in our hearts, completely at home and alive, without any suffering, without any feeling of oppression or res- or or uh, limitation. But really, we just feel and no fear. We feel free. So, a path of practice. We walk a path. And next week, I come. I'll talk about one version of this path. That's a uh, a very famous version of it called the Eightfold Path that's at the foundation of classic Buddhist teachings. So, thank you. <laughs>